Imagine it's the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. Your favorite team is down by four, right? So they need a touchdown to win. There's no other option. They're on the five-yard line, and there's enough time for one more play. This is an intense moment. If you're a sports fan, you understand the intensity. Maybe you've had, maybe it hasn't been football, but maybe you've experienced something like this, where your favorite team has this one moment. Their entire season boils down to this one moment. And if they can come through, then they will be champions. And if they cannot, they will be forgotten. Right? These moments of great intensity and expectation come with a lot of earnest waiting, hard waiting, right? We, we can barely even watch the play. But we, we experience moments like this not just in sports, right? Can, we maybe think of times where we've waited anxiously to see how the results of many moments leading to this moment are, they're, they're reaching a critical point, right? We might think of something like, if I'm awaiting the news about a performance review or uh, the news of the safe arrival of a loved one or the news of uh, the successful execution of a medical procedure, right? You hope that when you go to sleep, when you're put under anesthetic, that you will wake up and you will find out that this has been a successful operation, right? And so... This is somewhat similar. Obviously, there's some differences to where we left off last week. Right? We, we had Paul send out Timothy to find out news about the Thessalonians' faith. Paul was worried that their labor had been in vain. And so, this high-stakes situation where he is waiting for news is a difficult moment of waiting. And so, Paul, in this passage that we're looking at today, expresses his thanksgiving for the enduring faith of the Thessalonians as he also encourages them to continue pressing on in Christ. And so while the Thessalonians started off well, they must continue well, pressing towards the goal in Christ. And so I submit to us today that responding with faith to past grace in present circumstances sets the stage for future glory. Again, that's responding with faith to past grace in present circumstances sets the stage for future glory. So let us consider how we respond with faith to past grace. We see how Paul responds to the grace that he has seen in the church in Thessalonica. He responds with thanksgiving. And so our response of faith to past grace is thanksgiving. Let us look at verses 6 to 9 once again. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, And has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. 
For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul is uneasy with the faith of the Thessalonian church. And so he sends Timothy out and he responds to the news of their faith with great relief. And this results in thanksgiving. We see once again, verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? What thanksgiving? This is a rhetorical device, but also Paul literally does not have a way to express his thanks to God. There is no thanksgiving big enough, and I I want us to see that by understanding two things about Paul's thanksgiving. It is rooted in the fact that the stakes for faith for the Thessalonian church are high. The stakes for faith are high. And second, that God is the primary actor in our coming to faith. He was the primary actor in the Thessalonians' coming to faith, right? And so let us look together at the high stakes for faith. We, we can see this in the tone of what Paul is saying, not only here, but it, really in this entire section. Last week, we, we saw in, um, let's see, verse 19 of chapter 2, For what is our hope or crown or joy of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And we settled on this verse in sort of a perplexed manner of how can Paul give such great joy for the Thessalonians here, right? And now we have this surprisingly enthusiastic response. And why do I say it's surprisingly enthusiastic? Well, we look at verse 7. You see, even in distress, in affliction, Paul is comforted by the faith of the Thessalonians. He is comforted in a manner that their faith overshadows very present, very real troubles. So we see high stakes in that. But then we also see in verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so Paul is tethering his own well-being to the well-being and eternal destination of the Thessalonians. Their eternal state is more important to Paul than his earthly life, and that is why he is longing to come see them, even though it will mean persecution for him. You see, Paul recognizes the stakes for faith. That is what is underneath this thanksgiving that he gives. And it demonstrates a striking, chilling reality that all of life boils down to this single binary, faith or idolatry. We are always functioning out of faith or idolatry. So will we look to life where it can be found in God or will we look for life in something that cannot give life? Will we look for satisfaction in something that cannot satisfy? 
This is what sin is. It's something that we think will satisfy us that does not have the power to satisfy us. Brothers and sisters, there is no middle ground. So I plead with you, if there is one thing, maybe you think to yourself, God, I will give you everything, but just let me keep this one thing. That is a great litmus test, a great marker for where our idols might be. And so let us be aware of these things and I submit to you that it is worth it to lay your idols down because the cost of idolatry is great. In fact, the cost of idolatry is an infinite cost And on the other side, the reward of faith, and that is, when I say the reward of faith, I mean the free gift of faith is eternal. It is infinite. So you have infinite cost on one hand and infinite reward on the other. Right? And so this is where I say that Paul has immense thanksgiving here because I want us to just think about this a little bit deeper. If The stakes are high. The thanksgiving is high. Right? When you're on a plane flight with a lot of turbulence, you feel a lot more grateful to be on the ground than when your flight goes well. Right? When you catch yourself just before falling down the stairs, there is gratitude because you know what was at stake. You see, the higher the cost, the greater the stakes, the greater the resulting relief and thanksgiving. And we see another reason why Paul responds with, with faith, in faith, he responds with thanksgiving. Because God is the primary actor in our coming to faith. We see that in Paul's prayer in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake before God. Paul recognizes God's sovereignty in the Thessalonians coming to faith. So Paul does not say, thank you. What thanksgiving can I give to you Thessalonians for listening to my words? That's not what he says. He says, for what thanksgiving can I return to God for you? There's so much that can be said for this doctrine of calling, and I don't want us to get caught in the weeds here. We actually don't have time to get caught in the weeds here. But brothers and sisters, it is a glorious thing that God chooses. When God chooses to give life, we live. This is true physically, and this is true spiritually. And so God as the primary actor, gets all the glory. We have no cause for boasting. Even in our coming to faith, we do not boast. But Christ is our only boast. Brothers and sisters, do we see how this ought to lead us to be people of great gratitude? We should have immense gratitude and it's rooted in what has been given by God. When we recognize this, it's difficult to
be angry with others. It's difficult to be impatient with others because we see how patient God has been with us. We are debtors purchased by Christ's blood and we come with thanksgiving, not with pride. And so we respond with faith to God's past grace with thanksgiving. And now we, will, we look at responding with faith to present circumstances. Paul calls it standing fast in the Lord, right? Or standing firm in Christ. This is what it means to respond with faith to present circumstances. Stand firm in Christ. And what does it mean to stand firm in Christ? What did it mean for the Thessalonians? Right? They were idol worshipers before they met Paul. It meant laying down their idols. It meant treasuring Christ more than their idols. And it also meant treasuring Christ more than the threat of persecution that the Thessalonians church in Thessalonica would have faced. And now as we consider our own standing firm in Christ as a body of believers, I give us two reasons why we must stand firm in Christ. Christ is the ground for our hope and Christ is the hope for our transformation. Christ is the ground for our hope. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 once again. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Why is Paul comforted by the Thessalonians' faith? Is he just happy that they're, you know, that they're going to church? Is he just happy that they seem to have faith? Or is there something more? I submit to you that there is something more. That there is something deeply substantial about the substance of the Thessalonians' faith. It is the effectiveness of faith to move us from punishment to reward that makes it so great. So as we continue really to complete our understanding of the high stakes of faith, we must understand what makes faith effective. So I ask you, what makes faith effective? It's the cross of Christ. You see, Paul does not commend a nebulous faith Faith in itself does not save anyone. It is the object of the faith that holds the key. In Christ's death on the cross opened the way for salvation. Paul says in Romans, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This redemption was purchased by Christ's blood 
And this glorious reality is what makes the news of the Thessalonians' faith good news to Paul. If it were not for Christ's death on the cross, this news of the Thessalonians' faith would be powerless. So this is what makes it good news. And so Paul rejoices in the Thessalonians' faith because God's deliverance from affliction is sealed by the cross and guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ and in Christ alone. This is why we can rejoice in the midst of affliction. This is why Paul is comforted in the midst of affliction. And brothers and sisters, this will look different. This will look different than the world. Right? Because you're not supposed to rejoice in affliction. Right? That, it, it doesn't make sense to the outside world. Now, I do want to be clear. There is a place for sorrow. There is a place for lament in the life of the believer. But Christ says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, we should have sorrow. We should have sorrow for the brokenness of the world. And we, we should have sorrow for our own brokenness as we come face to face with sin. May that break our heart. May our heart break for the things that break God's heart. But brothers and sisters, our sorrow is not the sorrow of the world. Because we know that while there is pain in the night, joy comes in the morning. The victory is won in Christ. So, may we press on in trials with the hope of the glory of the life to come. Now, we look at a second reason why we as a church, we individually, together, must stand firm in Christ. And that is, Christ is the hope for our transformation. Look with me at verse 12 as Paul prays. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This prayer reflects the new covenant promise, the promise that we read from Jeremiah in our scripture reading, that God will write his law on his people's hearts. God will write his law on his people's hearts. And the law can be summed up in this, love God and love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. John Piper calls growth in love the essence of sanctification. Growth in love is the essence of sanctification. And we can see that here. 
in this passage. We see it between verses 12 and 13. So look again. Verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase in love. Now I skip ahead to verse 13. So that. May the Lord make you increase in love. So that. So that means that there is a purpose to our growth in love. And what is that purpose? We see in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. The purpose of growth in love is growth in holiness. Now, this might be shaking up some of our views of holiness, right? When we think of holiness, we think set apart, different. We think morally excellent. And we might think in terms of don'ts, right? We might think in terms of the negative aspect of the law. Don't do this. Don't do that. But what we see here is that the essence of holiness is love. And so I challenge us to reshape our thinking into the do's. Do love. That is what we are called to. That is what the law is. And we tend to have a problem with law, but we don't have a problem with love. But if we can see that the law is love, that is the heart of the law. That is what Paul teaches. That is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot fulfill the law if we do not love. And we cannot love if God does not produce it in us. We see that in the fact that Paul is praying that the Thessalonians would grow in love. Why does Paul pray? Why doesn't he just exhort them? Come on, guys, do this. You know, I just said think in terms of the do's. But, but what we need to think about is that love is actually the fruit of standing firm in Christ. And that is why we must stand firm in Christ. Now, as a church, we can look around and we can see each other and we can think, okay, I'm supposed to love these people. How can, we, how can we grow this community? And we start to think of the do's, but I challenge us, let's think of how we press deeper and stand firm in Christ and let the love grow out of our standing firm in Christ. Now, there's a lot I could keep saying about this. I'm going to move on to my last point, even though I really want to hammer this home. Guys, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, we are called to love, and Christ says that, that the world will know that we are his by the way we love each other. So there, there would be good reason to just stay on this point the rest of the, the sermon, Right? But we also are looking ahead. And I submit to us that the way that we look to head together is a way to love each other. One of the functions of the church is that we point each other back. We point each other back. And so now we look at what we are pressing on towards. Right? We respond with faith 
to pass grace by thanksgiving and we respond with faith to present circumstances by standing firm in Christ. And now, brothers and sisters, as we look ahead, how are we to respond with faith to the future? Press on towards all that God has promised in Christ. We are beckoned to keep the coming kingdom in view and to continue to press on because future grace is what we hope for. We are here by God's grace. Grace that we have seen that is evident in our past. And we will continue on towards grace in the future and we stand firm with grace behind and grace ahead. Now why must we, why must we keep our eyes on the finish line? What will your faith be if you are not rooted in eternity and tragedy strikes? How will you respond to distress and affliction? Do you have hope that even if the entire world around you collapses, that your citizenship is not on earth, but it is in heaven? This is how we stand firm. This is how our faith becomes concrete. Because of the hope that we look to, we trust, have faith in Christ for the finish. I point us in our text to verse 10, and we'll see that the work is not finished in the Thessalonian church. Paul says, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So, what's going on, Paul? You said that the Thessalonians have faith. You're encouraged by them. Why are they lacking in faith? Why isn't it just encouragement? Why does he point out that they are lacking in faith? Brothers and sisters, we are all lacking in faith. Right? That this is true as a church and it's true as individuals, but let me tell you what I mean. We all lack faith on this side of eternity Because we have not yet seen him as he is, but we know that when we do see him, we will be made like him. That's what John teaches in 1 John. Now, some of us, it is possible that we have not grasped and held on to faith. That what we might, what can appear to be genuine faith has not actually gripped a person's heart. And this is why Matthew says not, or sorry, Jesus says in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so Christ is not after us saying the right things, and he's not even after us doing the right things with the wrong heart, but we need a new heart. We need to press on In Christ, we need to stand firm in Him. But even if you are not lacking genuine faith, brothers and sisters, we are all lacking faith. And so we continue to press on. And that is part of the sustaining grace, right? Is that we we serve 
each other, by pointing each other. We're running a race and we are saying, stay on course. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to the Thessalonians, you've started off well, now stay the course. Now, brothers and sisters, Christ's coming is a reality. We need to be planted in that reality. We need to know that that is a reality. And here's the thing. We are in a world that does not recognize this reality. And so we see the world with a different lens because we know that all of history is pointing towards this moment of Christ's return. Look with me at verse 13. So that he may establish your heart's blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. In his popular book, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, People, Stephen Covey makes the point. He, He gives this advice, begin with the end in mind. Now he is speaking of this in sort of a, you know, Whatever you're going to do, begin with the end in mind. This is a time management strategy. But for us, it is more than a time management strategy. We must begin with the end in mind. We must keep the reality of Christ coming central to how we live now. May we be a people that stand on the ground of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice and look to his glory. And may we stand firmly in the gospel every step of the way. And may we point each other, exhort each other to do this, to stand firm in Christ until the end. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude, we ought to be a people of great thanksgiving for the past grace that we have seen in Christ. May we be a people that stand firm in Christ now as we look to his glorious return. And may we see that we together are in this together, right? The one way that we can imagine it, actually, I didn't even realize this, I didn't think about it, but I did think of this illustration uh, before singing it in our, in our song, Christ the sure and steady anchor. The last verse, I think, maybe not the last verse, one of the verses, um, it says, Christ the shore of our salvation. That, that's what I'm looking for. So not sure which verse it is, but it says it. Christ the shore of our salvation. Guys, Christ is the shore of our salvation and we are sailing together on a ship towards salvation. Do not jump ship. May we encourage each other to stay the course and to be a part of this crew that is sailing towards Christ, the shore of our salvation. And as we see our walk together in this light, may verse 8 give us new meaning as we seek to have the same spirit that Paul has for the Thessalonians. For now we live 
if you are standing fast in the Lord. Hope that God's word would write its truths on our hearts.